Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Commerce Trust Company. This is Chris Shields, and with me is Scott Colbert, our Chief Economist. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Chris. Now that tensions with Iran have seemingly eased back uh, here in the early part of January, eased back from the brink, what can the U.S. economy expect in, uh, in 2020? Uh, sure, that's a pretty good lead-in with what we've got going on overseas. Um, uh, clearly, those tensions popped out of the middle of nowhere, and uh, on a perpetual basis, we always have geopolitical risk as a flare-up, as, as kind of an ongoing concern. It pretty much has been almost all of our adult lives. Um, you know, the uh, U.S. economy grew at 2.4 percent uh, last year, probably, when it's all said and done. The mean consensus forecast for growth seems to range from about 1.6 percent to 2 percent for this year. Let's call it 1.8 as the midpoint. We think it's going to actually, the U.S. economy is going to actually do much, much better. You know, we have a litany of reasons probably why, but maybe in order of uh, uh, importance, um, certainly this uh, trade uh, phase one deal that we are signing today is probably the key issue. Uh, it was certainly what weighed us back a little bit last year, obviously, and we still grew. And so putting those trade tensions aside, we think, um, adds considerable upside. Most people don't pay attention day-to-day to interest rates, but interest rates declined last year, of course, and the Federal Reserve cut rates three times. Interest rates work with a lag, and that 75 basis point lower short-term interest rate, and the 10-year interest rate fell almost an identical amount. It fell from 2.68% to 1.92%. Um, those lower interest rates um, should help growth uh, this year. The global economy is improving, too. We are still a relatively U.S.-centric economy. More than 80% of our GDP is derived internally, with less than 20% you know, affected by overseas. But the, um, the globe is turning as well. Um, you can see that um, in a few statistics. Emerging market stocks are outperforming ours, which, of course, have had a great year, but they finally, the emerging markets uh, are taking off a bit. The U.S. dollar has peaked which helps the international markets. Um, China's even stimulating. They're lowering interest rates again and cutting their reserve requirements. And the global leading economic indicators are, are moving up. So there's a lot of reasons to think you know, positively. Um, inside pool would suggest that you know, when you really start to look at it uh, from a banking perspective, credit spreads have come down last year. You might recall that stock prices fell what was it, 18 to 20 percent in the fourth quarter of 2018. And of course, they're up 30 percent this year. But along with that big stock market surge came a reduction in the average cost of a company to borrow. So not only did interest rates come down, but the credit spreads, the extra spread that a, a company pays to borrow money declined. Investment-grade credits declined by about 60 basis points. So they're, they're, they're much tighter. High-yield had an even bigger year, and so did the emerging market debt. One thing that people don't talk about very much anymore is the wealth effect, meaning that as uh, your portfolio grows, you tend to spend a little bit more money. Um, it's hard to believe, but domestic wealth was up about $11 trillion last year with interest rates coming down and the stock market surging, home prices improving, business valuations increasing, corporate earnings increasing just a little bit. The multiplier, this is a little wonky, but the multiplier effect is about three-tenths to five-tenths of a percent of that new wealth typically gets spent. The year before, in 2018, we actually had no wealth created. 
You'll recall stock prices were down across the board, and about the highest returning asset class was lowly bonds, and they gave you about a zero return in 2018. But this year, of course, it's been nothing but upside with a typical balanced portfolio probably returning at least 15%, and in some cases, if you were overweighted stocks, you know, closer to 20%. So that wealth effect is large. That could add as much as two-tenths to three-tenths of a percent in GDP. And, and people aren't talking much about that, but there was a negative wealth effect last year, a positive wealth effect this year. And then very simply, if you just track something like corporate tax receipts, they are literally up 5.1% year-to-date. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we're paying 5.1% more taxes, it probably means we're making 5.1% more money. That would be the first cut at nominal growth. You take 5.1%, you subtract out inflation of 2%. That pushes you towards an estimate closer to 3 rather than 2% growth. So we're very optimistic, you know, about the year. Scott, there's certainly been a lot to focus on in the news, but let's focus on China for just a minute in the trade deal. Can you give us some more detail about that? Well, it's a 85 or 86-page agreement. They haven't released the agreement yet, but the gist of it is simply this that uh, the Chinese have agreed to buy approximately $200 billion more dollars of goods and services from us than they had been. Now, that $200 billion is a wonky number because what it really means is they're going to buy about $80 billion more this year and then about $120 billion more off of a baseline from two years ago, so before the whole trade war started. So cumulatively, they're, you know, they're anticipating that they will buy as much as $200 billion. Now, the total trade deficit with China was only $400 billion. We would import um, about $550 billion and export to them about $150. So our trade deficit was $400. This is supposed to narrow that by at least a quarter if you take the 100 per year on average, 100 and 100. So those goods and services will primarily be you know, agricultural, um, so it should be good for the farmers. The worries, of course, are the enforcement mechanisms and, you know, what we can do about it if they don't follow through. And it will be fairly difficult, actually, for the Chinese to suddenly reverse direction and start buying because it takes time to find the suppliers. It takes time to find the sellers. Uh, so this, this could take a little bit of time. But, you know, nonetheless, it at least is a, is a lowering of those tensions. And it's pretty clear that the president probably doesn't want to raise them again going into the election year. So it's a fairly positive spin on the outlook after a fairly negative year with the you know increasing tariffs. It's certainly been a spark of some kind. We have a Dow floating with a 29,000 mark. Um, can the current U.S. expansion continue into an 11th uh, year? And if so, how long and when might it end? Well, we're 10 and a half now, right? <clears throat> January. So the uh, to, to make it 11 years, you have to make it to June. And you just heard how optimistically we are about, um, you know, the forward progress. And in fact, the probabilities of a recession compared to this time last year have declined significantly because of the increasing stock market, the decline in credit spreads, and lower energy prices. Energy prices today, WTI crude is about $58 a barrel. We don't talk about energy too much anymore because, of course, we can make so much of it here and we're less of a net energy importer than we've ever been that energy prices just haven't been much on our radar screen. But if you think about every major recession we've ever had, they've almost always been accompanied by higher energy prices and rising inflation. And the lack of you know, an increase in energy prices, even despite the Iran flare-up, 
um, very well controlled, very well behaved, um, even despite the fact, uh, you know, they barely budged when, when Iran uh, took out the uh, Saudi Aramco facilities with all those missiles earlier in the year. Uh, we barely had a budget in energy prices. So I think the lower energy prices really point to a lower probability of a recession. So we see the economy as continuing to expand for several years more, um, probably on average a lot longer than the mean consensus. And we've been fairly consistent about that. And I can't see why it wouldn't continue with the probabilities of recession even lower today than they were this time last year. You know, you've been a upbeat for a fairly long time uh, it, up to this point. The, we've averted a major military conflict with Iran. Inflation remains tame. But there are some risks, and, and, and I bet you could uh, uh, maybe lead us down that path a little bit to see what it looks like. Well, I think, you know, the biggest risk to our economy, oddly enough, is just a fall in the stock market. Now, the stock market is a leading economic indicator, so what would cause the stock market to fall other than the fact that it's just, you know, basically moved to record levels and it's probably you know, by almost every measure other than relative to interest rates on the rich side. Um, probably number one would be the um, re-implementation of additional tariffs. In other words, if this trade deal, even though we're supposed to be signing it today, just, just for whatever reason, the administration feels like, you know, the Chinese are not um, adhering to it and we have the ability to reinstate tariffs, I think those tariffs would, would be a sudden uh, a sudden hit to the markets and a sudden hit to the stock market and would cause the uh, outlook to cloud. <clears throat> Secondly, of course, we've got the election. Now everybody wants to point to the election and of course Republicans want to blame Democrats and Democrats want to blame Republicans as the election moves on. Uh, but nonetheless, um, certainly the, um, uh, the, 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 I will call them the less pro-business friendly policies out of the Democratic side. To the extent that those take hold, I think those could hold the stock market back or certainly you know, place a dent in the outlook um, for the business uh, economy. And then I think the third thing would be um, problems in China that we don't foresee. China is a very leveraged economy. Um, they have uh, built some of their growth on the back of increasing debt, much like this economy has. Uh, but it's a little more precarious when it's an emerging market economy like China, even though they have a billion three people, their debt to GDP ratios are approaching that of the United States where their, you know, of course, their average income per capita is about a twelfth still of ours. So, you know, a slowdown in, in China would also be um, a material um, problem. Um, at the margin, most of the world's growth has been built upon China. So anything that would push that backwards also, um, you know, uh, pushes back the forecast. Scott, let's shift back to fixed income for just a second. I think you've said in the past that bonds are an insurance policy for, for almost any portfolio. Um, it was such a fantastic year for bonds uh, in 2019. Can there be a repeat performance in fixed income? You know, the um, investment-grade bond market last year, the average core bond fund was probably up at least 8% and maybe even closer to 9%. So investment-grade bonds gave you 9%. Now, how did they do that? They gave you 3% in coupon. Plus, they gave you 6% in capital appreciation because those interest rates came down. Um, high yield did even better with, you know, something like 10 to 12 to 14% returns. And emerging markets, uh, bonds did about the same. So, you know, the fixed income markets were, in fact, a balanced portfolio. The combination of stocks and bonds last year was about the best it's been in almost 25 years. So both stocks and bonds, you know, were, were huge contributors. The answer is mathematically probably no, almost an impossibility that fixed income could pro provide the same result. 
what you need fixed income for, though, largely is um, a, uh, an insurance policy against a stock market disaster. Because I will say, if, stock mar- if the stock prices start to fall, chances are interest rates are coming down. If interest rates go down, then high-quality investment-grade bonds do pretty well. Uh, so uh, uh, the only way that I see that the interest rate, um, you know, uh, an investment-grade bond portfolio, again, gives you another 8 or 9%, unfortunately, this year, would be if the stock market does very poorly. Now, we don't expect that, by the way, too. When stocks do as well as they have historically, there tends to be a follow-on. In fact, there's only been six years where the stock market's been up 29% or more. And in each of those following six years, the average return was 19%. The lowest return was 8%. If you take it down to something more like 20%, it's more like a 90%, a 9 out of 10 possibility that we'll have positive returns this year, um, you know, uh, following on a 20-plus percent uh, return year. So we're, we're, we're still optimistic on the stock side. In addition, other than interest rates coming down, we had those credit spreads contract. And when corporate bond spreads contract, that also adds to the return. And I don't foresee that. For example, high-yield credit spreads went from 5-plus percent. In other words, the average high-yield bond was yielding more than 5%, more than a treasury, to about 3 and a third percent today. The all-time low is about 2 and a third. So you don't have much more room to go. In emerging market, debt did has, had a, has a similar story. And even the average corporate bond today which yields 91 basis points. The average investment-grade corporate bond yields 91 basis points, or nine-tenths of a percent more than a Treasury bond. The all-time low since 2000 has only been 81 basis points. So we're at the low end of these credit spread ranges or the incremental oomph that you can get in an improving economy. So unfortunately, the answer is simply no. Fixed-income investments can't possibly give you the same nominal results this year that they did last. Scott, any final thoughts for our audience before we sign off? I guess um, I think this is, uh, you know, another up year. It's going to be followed with with positive financial asset performance. We're still optimistic on the outlook, still optimistic on the economy, um, and we think it can continue longer than most. That still doesn't mean when the economy does start to slow or we have the eventual recession because the business cycle clearly hasn't been repealed. you don't have to get more defensive. And while it's easy to feel good in these up years, I think, you know, what we're, you know, asking people to do is consider to rebalance their portfolios, take some of those stock market winnings, put it back into something that you really, really don't feel like you want, which is what? A low-yielding fixed-income investment. But again, that's your insurance policy. I will just mention, you know, for, for a warning and a cautionary tale, the last two times we had a recession, The S&P 500 fell 55% in the last recession. It was the deepest and longest recession we ever had. But prior to that, we had the Internet bubble, where the S&P also fell 50%. Will we have a similar 50% loss this next recession? On average, stocks are down about 38%, 37% in a recession. So typically, they're not that deep. But my guess is it's likely to be just as deep because we're pushing on valuations now and we are stretched for time. And so this this last 30% gain that we got in the S&P 500, unfortunately, just creates higher valuations and more money or more potential to be lost in the next downturn. And so while we still think it's a ways away, consider rebalancing, considering taking off some of the risks here as we, as we move late in the cycle, because eventually we're going to want to be more defensive than we are right now. 
Scott, we'll hope the economy keeps humming along like it has uh, and maybe get into that 11th year. That was Scott Colbert, Chief Economist for Commerce Trust Company. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Chris. The risk of loss in securities and other investments can be substantial. You should always carefully consider whether investments either entered into directly by you or on a discretionary managed basis through Commerce Trust Company or any financial institution is appropriate for you in light of your investment objectives, financial circumstances, tax status, your tolerance to risk, and your investment experience. In considering whether to trade or invest, you should inform yourself and be aware of the risks generally. Non-depository investments offered in connection with Commerce Bank and its affiliates are not guaranteed, are not FDIC insured, and as noted earlier, may lose value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and the opinions and other information in the commentary are provided as of this date and are subject to change. Information provided is for the purpose of general education, information, or illustration only, and is not to be treated as the opinion of Commerce Trust Company or Commerce Bank as a recommendation on any future investment or market behavior. Providing this information, which may be of value to you or others in the general audience, shall not detract from an investor's responsibilities to take all such steps and make all such inquiries as may be necessary or desirable to ensure that you fully understand and are familiar with any potential future investment. Neither Commerce nor any of its officers, employees, or agents have made any recommendation or given any advice as to the terms and profitability of any investment or market activity which may be referenced here. Accordingly, you understand that you are and shall at all times be fully responsible for any investment transaction you choose to enter into and that you shall not have relied on any of the preceding or following information from Commerce as a basis for an investment decision. Please also note that Commerce does not offer tax, legal, or specific estate planning advice, and while we may provide information or express general opinions from time to time, such information or opinions are not offered as professional tax or legal advice. If you are in any doubt about the risks involved in any trading or investment arrangements, or you are uncertain of or have not understood any aspect of this risk disclosure statement, you should seek independent professional advice. Markets, economic forecasts, and specific investments can change from time to time based on a variety of individual, interrelated, or complex factors of varying degree. This disclosure statement cannot, of course, disclose all the risks and other significant aspects of investments, economies, or markets in which you may elect to transact from time to time. You should therefore carefully study relevant investment arrangements in advance of making decisions regarding investing.